Well, good morning. Welcome to Community Church. Um, my heart is just so full because I feel like God has drawn near and He has something that He wants us to connect with. But it's something dear to Him. It's something profound in His heart. And it says in the Psalms that deep calls unto deep. That there's something in you that's deep, that's made for something in God that's deep. But it's a precious thing and it will not be had lightly. And so in these moments... You know, we look at the band and they're singing songs we know and there's words we know, but really what God is looking for is that desire. You know, when you have deep desire, you find words, you find expressions, you find passion. So I'm praying this morning that we would not be the church that responds to ritual or liturgy or planned programming and That we're not an audience that claps when others do well, but we see that he is the audience of one. And that his heart is longing for a people that cry out to him for a treasure that's hidden from the eyes of the world. That's hidden from the eyes of all mankind, but ready to be poured out on the earth. So Lord, we say today that we want more of you. Lord, we want more of your presence. God, we long. Lord, you said if we sought you, that we would find you. You said, seek me while I can be found, Lord, and we want more of you, Lord. You know, many of you came from a life of drunkenness, and one of the values, if you can call it that, but one of the things a lot of people liked is When I drank, I lost my self-consciousness. I stopped being intimidated by all the eyes looking at me. You know, I was able to dance. I was able to roll around on the floor, whatever. I didn't care anymore. I I broke from the constraints of the fear of the, the opinions of men. Now, the Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you know what? The end is the same. The product is the same. Breaking free from the constraints of self-awareness. Because self-awareness and the need to protect an image that you protect, that you hold to, that, that speaks well of you, that's, that's what everything is about. You are locked into something. And when you get filled with the Spirit, you get released. And then you got some religious spirit in the background later in the week saying to you, well, yeah, but what was the practical outcome? Like, who got saved? Who got healed? What's the benefit? You don't understand what you're locked into then if you don't understand the benefit of that. You don't understand the chains that you're trying to get free from. If... 
If you couldn't dance, if you can't celebrate before the Lord, if you can't shout and lift your hands and get crazy without that compromising some image, you don't even know you're still in bondage. If that is such a costly thing to your ego, you don't know how bound you are. And what David understood is when I come to the Lord, there's only one that's going to be dignified in this equation, and it's going to be him. There's only one person that's going to look stayed and together, and it's him. Only him. And whether you like it or not, the ascension into his presence requires that we abandon something of our sophistication. And if we do not, if we cannot, then we have regard for something that he will not have regard for. And we will, we will assign ourselves to a lower sphere, a distant outer court. Father, we want to glorify you. We want to glorify you. Now, I'm not saying that to get anybody to dance. I'm just saying that this is the trajectory of coming into his presence. Well, I don't want to worship God with all my heart because there's people looking. I don't want to be too undignified because there's cameras here. You might catch me. I'll just do it all in the secrecy of my heart. No, deep down, I'm deeply committed. Deep down, I am laying it all bare. Father, this is the landing place for your glory. This, your church, this, your people, is the landing place for your majesty in the earth. Lord, we pray that we could sanctify your name. Just lean into that a little. I feel this prophetic spirit to say, don't be discouraged. Do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged for the sounds of the enemy. Do not be discouraged for the visibility of darkness suddenly that seems to come. For my light has exposed the darkness. My light has begun to rise upon you. My light has begun to rise upon the people called by my name. For have I not said, behold, a light will shine upon you and your glory will rise. Light shine. Father, we say let light shine. This past week, a friend of mine posted a word. And he said, when Goliath came onto the scene and began to threaten Israel, when that Philistine spirit rose up to threaten the inheritance of God, Before that moment, you never heard of Goliath. But he was already well advanced in years. He had four grown sons or something like that. 
He said, but it was right after David was anointed that Goliath came onto the scene. And the word was this. It is the anointing of David that exposes Goliath and causes him to no longer be able to stay in the shadows. When it comes to organized crime, it's obvious we know this, that the low-hanging fruit is the least powerful figures in organized crime. The visible merchants of darkness and death and lawlessness are the least powerful. The ones they want to get are the ones that are hidden. The ones that hide behind webs and bureaucracies and veils. And they do not want themselves to be known or seen. Father, we say, let your glory come down. This morning I was reading, I think it was in Psalm 34, and it stuck with me. It said, evil will slay the wicked. And as I've been meditating on it this morning, it, to me, represents the prophetic word of Isaiah that says to those who are aligned with darkness, your covenant with Sheol will be broken. And I feel like there is this jealousy in the heart of God, a jealousy and a longing for justice, Ah, a hatred for the fact that wickedness prospers in the land of the righteous. So, Father, we pray for the nation of Canada. We pray for the province of Alberta. And, Father, we pray that wickedness would not prosper. God, that you would be a swift judge against darkness, against lies and cheaters and unjust weights and balances. God, we say in the name of Jesus, those who defraud their neighbor will be found out. Those who steal kill and destroy, will be brought to justice. Oh God, we say, God, forgive us for not being concerned about justice. Every once in a while I hear a story comes across my path, and you people that are in business, you, you hear this. It's commonplace where somebody, somebody gets a bid in good faith, they get you to do work, and then they just refuse to pay just flat out refused to pay. And it's astonishing. It's astonishing that in a land like this, injustice would go and be rewarded and that these men and women and people would plot to defraud and then hide behind layers of bureaucracy and courts and legal costs and lawyers. Father, in Jesus' name, unravel. Unravel the devices of those who plot and align themselves with darkness. Father, you said you would be a swift judge against the unrighteous. Oh God, let me tell you, it's not God's desire that any should perish, but I'm telling you some will. It's not God's will that any man or woman would go to hell, but some will. Some will. 
And the greatest thing this land could have as a witness is a manifestation of glory that pierces the darkness, that provides a, a light on a hill, that is salt and light. And that's you and I. So, Father, this morning we pray, God, you would increase our capacity to be the light. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So, hallelujah, so good to be here. I've been doing a series on peacemakers, and, uh, and I want to touch on that. But I'm not really sure how I want to touch on it, because I have so many themes and so many lines And I've already gone over this. I think I've preached four times already on blessed are the peacemakers. But we are the ones who can establish peace. Did you know that? The sons of God. It says in Matthew 5. And it just turned out this morning my reading was in Matthew 5. So I was was thinking, Lord, should should I read, should I preach again on Matthew 5? Nine, and then I open up to read in that, you know, in the Bible, and it sent me to Matthew five. So I thought, okay, I guess that's a that's clear enough for even me. We'll do that. So we're we're talking on on this thing, but there's a journey. See, because the apostles they knew what the people of God and the sons of God were called to. And it was always their aim to get them from point A to point B. That means we're going to get you saved, but now we want you to be an ambassador of the kingdom. Now we want you to be somebody who can actually minister the atmospheres and the substances that are in heaven. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, the the kingdom of heaven is all about commodities that are in heaven. That's why the basic commodity of life is represented like water. Right? Ezekiel's dream. So uh, it represents in Ezekiel, Ezekiel's vision is of a, a river that flows out of the eastern gate of the temple. And of course, you know how it goes and it, and it flows against wider and deeper and wider and deeper and wider and deeper. It's, it's, a, it's a river that flows against the laws of nature. When you have a, a river, basically... It, as it goes, if it's not being fed by other tributaries, it's, if it's not being sustained, it dwindles. It doesn't increase. It doesn't get broader and deeper. It gets narrower and shallower until it flows into something where it just evaporates. It becomes a creek and, you know, there's nothing left of it. We see, you know, if you watch National Geographic, you see this in you know, as a part of the rain seasons in Africa and how the herds, they follow and they're looking for this and it comes down to trickles and little muddy brooks and, and, and little, anyway, that's, but life is sustained and the river of life sustains everything. Life is not just what you're going to do when you die, have eternal life. He says, this is eternal life that you may know him. In other words, you're, the amount of the knowledge of God that you are interacting with is actually the amount of inter- eternal life that's in, in your being, that's a part of your, your experience. 
We're not just waiting to go to heaven. We're experiencing eternal life now. That's why Paul prays. He said, listen, I'm praying that the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of revelation would be upon you that you would know uh, the power that's already at work inside of you. What is he talking about? Say, listen, when one joins himself to the Lord, he becomes one spirit. And you became born again. Your spirit got connected with the Holy Spirit of God. That river that's in God is coming down to the earth and it's popping up through you. My question is, how conversant are you with the dynamics of that river? Does it flow out of you? Is there enough water there to humidify a room? Is there enough for you to not thirst? You remember when Jesus said to the woman at the well, he said, the, the water that I will give you, right, will be enough for you to never thirst. You should never be thirsty, Christian. What? What do I come to church for? We'll talk about that later. But this is what he said. He said, the, the drink that I will give you will become in you a fountain. The reason you never become thirsty is you cross a threshold in your kingdom experience where you learn to access the rivers of God in your daily experience. Now, man, I could preach on that for hours because for some people, it's like, ah, I felt God last year once. I felt God three years ago. I, I had the inspiration of the knowledge of God that, that moved my heart. When I was first saved that week after my baptism, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, prayed, prayed in tongues once. He said, to him that believes, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so the picture that we have is God is saying, listen, you are the only river people are going to know. Out of your life, out of your life, people are meant to experience the life of God flowing out of you. And the reason we gather is to create a torrent. The reason we gather is so that we can have a river with a, with a fullness, with an experience partially, partially, to alert people who don't know they have a river inside them that they have a river inside them. You know, when, when Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and, uh, and he meets them and then, of course, he, they, they don't know it's him. He prophesies to them and says all these things and they, he, they beg him to stop and, and have food and he breaks the bread and disappears. And then they said, they right away they said, did not our hearts burn inside of us? What was happening when Jesus was speaking that part of them where the spirit of God flows from heaven and is connected to their spirit that started them, that, it's, that part of them started to move. It started to churn inside of them. What do you call that? Like a turbine. Did you feel the burning of the turbine of the spirit of God when he began to speak? When you first become a Christian, you depend on that turbine to be turned by somebody else. Unfortunately, sometimes we, we decide, hey, you're not turning my crank anymore. 
I'm going to go find somebody else more anointed to turn my crank. When the real message is, turn your own crank. You have a river. You have an anointing. That's what John said. He said, there's an anointing inside of you, and you don't need that anybody would serve the purpose of providing that river for you. Now, Jesus taught the disciples. He wasn't saying, listen, you don't have need of any teachers in your life, but the reality is it's the deposit that's in you that teaches you. And when you hear the voice of an anointed person, they start that thing turning. And actually, your inspiration comes out of that thing turning. It's just the momentum is being provided by them. But you don't necessarily need them to provide that momentum. Once you start to turn your own crank, then you start being a supply. So God is saying, listen, you have the means inside of you to light up your world. You have the means inside of you to be a sound of refreshing, to be a sound of power, a sound of... There's, there's glory inside of you. Is there enough to light up a room? So I was thinking about this this morning. I've, I've told this story before, but... I'll tell it again, because I like it. I was about... Uh, I see Larry and Tracy Green there visiting, bless you. About the time when Larry and I first met, in grade seven or eight, we're up in Cold Lake, Alberta, and me and a couple of guys, we, we formed a gang. We were the toughest gang in McKenzie. <laughs> McKenzie was one. McKenzie is one of four little burbs as part of the military base up there in Cold Lake. Anyway, yeah, we didn't let it out that we had a gang because we weren't that tough. But as long as we weren't competing, in our minds, we were the toughest gang in McKenzie. <laughs> anyway, so about that time, I started fighting and being a ruffian and, and whatnot. And I remember I was, I was uh, out at the rink, and I was in the bathroom. And me and my buddy are chatting it up. We're talking about so-and-so who thinks he's tougher than me. Yeah, he, can you believe it? He thinks he could take me. And uh, we're talking like, you know, we actually have something. And then I happen to glance over, and there's this guy who's about four years older than me. And he's standing there. He just glances over with this smirk on his face. The smirk said everything. It cut through our little world and exposed another world much greater. It was like suddenly we saw who we were compared to the, a part of the real world, a sliver of the real world, but a guy a couple of years older who could with his little finger, you know, throw us on the ground or something. It was like all of a sudden, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be talking about tough around these guys. And so... That perspective that he had. Now, he wasn't an anointed guy. He, wasn't, he didn't say anything. He didn't teach anything. He didn't, rep, he didn't reprimand us. He just brought a perspective that somehow invisibly intruded on our little world, little conversation, and exposed us to a larger world. Immediately, we felt small. 
It was a humiliating moment. But actually, those kinds of moments is what we're meant to enjoy and then provide for others. Moments where, where the light of God... See, there, there, is, there is something that God wants to do in his people and he's eager to do it. He's saying, listen, there's more for you. There's more power. There is more anointing. There's more light. I have you in conversations all the week long. I have you in rooms where things that are being said that are lies. And the question is, is there enough light on you that people will begin to be embarrassed about what it is they're saying because suddenly the emptiness of what they're saying becomes apparent even to them. Though all you've done is stand in the same room and look in their general direction. That's talking about a clash of atmospheres, a clash of kingdoms. It might be just the elementary level, but it's a, it's a test. Can you create atmosphere that makes people accountable to a truth that you carry? Light is the manifestation of a truth that you carry. Atmospheres. So when we come in here today on a Sunday, we are pooling our ability to create an atmosphere in order to enjoy an atmosphere bigger. And God takes that atmosphere that's created by your worship and he begins to inhabit it. And he begins to use that atmosphere like a sword. He begins to release prophetic words and intercession. He begins to release life that that is more than we can consume and more than is needed in this room. And it invisibly begins to spill out the building. I saw something the other day. Who was it that was speaking? We're talking about impartations. Anyway, I can't remember who it is, but he said, listen, when you come to a meeting, you can receive an impartation. You receive an impartation from the worship. You receive an impartation from other people who are walking in more life than you. You receive an impartation from the time of worship, but that impartation will last you two to three days max. And what that impartation is, and I'm telling you right now, there's a light in the room today that says, turn your life to me, says the Lord. And when you, it's an impartation. You have a two to three days max to begin to act on that. And the decision you make to act on that will determine the course of your life. But if you expect that that impartation is what is going to keep you accountable Thursday and Friday and Saturday, you'll be gone. If that's the only light that you live on. So simply make a decision today. I want to walk in the light. I want to be around the light more. I I realized this when I wasn't even saved. I realized this when we we were going to a Catholic home group. When I was uh, 11 years old. I would go in there and I would feel something. We would sing these songs and I would feel something. But by Monday, it was like, it was pretty much gone. The glow of that experience 
I thought, well, you know, if God is real, why isn't this more, more permanent? So I made other people responsible for my lack of light. There's something that God wants to give us. And so let me get back to my message. I have a message. <laughs> so James, the whole book of James is about this exact thing. And, and, and essentially, James is putting his finger on, on the frustrations of the lives of Christians. Now, don't put up your hand or anything, but has any, anybody here ever been frustrated that things aren't moving along faster than you think they should? That things aren't happening the way they should? Well, James, James comes out very clearly and says, it's not your fault. Wrong. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to see if anybody was listening. He said, no, it's entirely your fault. (laughs) Peter said the same thing. He said, everything necessary for life and godliness has already been provided. Everything necessary for life and godliness has already been provided. So, so James is getting into the nitty-gritty, and he's not sharing anything that's different than John or Peter or others did, but he's breaking it down to really specific things. And we've been talking about some of those specific things. But I want to give you a synopsis of where he's going with this, particularly because it ties into Matthew 5.9. But he says in verse 18 of chapter 3, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now there's a lot of things, you know, maybe in another few weeks somebody else will preach on this and do a teaching about it. But basically, he's saying, listen, the fruit of righteousness is something that we sow when we're making peace. Righteousness, the only reason righteousness is ever in a nation is because somebody sowed it. The reason you were born into a world with any kind of righteousness at all is because somebody before you sowed that righteousness because they were sons of God. They were peacemakers. They were makers of peace. They knew how to make peace and they sowed righteousness. So he's saying, listen, he didn't, he's not quoting Matthew 5 here, but he's basically referring back to it. He's Referring back to the destiny. Listen, you guys, you are called to make peace. But how can you make peace when you're busy making war? And that's his message. Basically the whole thing. How can you make peace when you're busy making war? Now, the first time I actually talked about any of this, well, I've talked about James before, but I, it touched me when we were in Uganda. We were at the refugee camp. I don't know if I told this story already. Maybe I did, but it's a good story. Anyway, we're at the refugee camp. There's 50,000 people there. It's not a camp. Like I'm thinking, you know, some tents and stuff. It's a city. Yeah, I mean, they're making things out of concrete and everything. There's, there's roads, bad roads, but there's roads. 50,000 people. Is it more? 110,000. See that? They've added 60 since I was there. (laughs) Well, a lot of people, a lot of people. But we're going there, and you start hearing the stories of some of these people, and their lives have been ravaged by war. 
I mean, civil war in the Congo has destroyed. And we, as we hear the stories, you know, we, we're so used to sort of people with nothing having a little bit less. You know, kind of, you got nothing, and now you still got nothing. But you have nothing in a different place. I mean, that's our, that's our picture of refugees. You know, they had a grass hut in this part of the country. Now they're over here. And they have no grass hut or a smaller one. And they think, oh, it's not so tragic. But we start hearing the stories. I mean, these are lawyers. These are business people. These are wealthy people. These are people with lives very much like yours and mine. Exactly like ours. Educated. You know, well-to-do. Family lines. I mean, these are people whose lives, normal lives, like you and I, exactly like you and I, ravaged. This terrible thing. And I'm sitting there, and i got to speak to this group of people, and there's so many widows there because their, their kids have been murdered, their husbands have been killed, murdered, they've been raped. They, I mean, it's terrible stuff. What do you say to people like that? What do you say? How do you comfort people like that? Something in... I mean, God's truth is true no matter what. But I'm thinking, what do I say to people like this? You know what the Lord gives me to say to them? Tell them they're not victims. Tell them they're not victims. So what? <laughs> How do you do that and still, you know, live? <laughs> so I begin to speak... In the verses following, verses 3, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18, so right into chapter 4. And one of the questions James asks, it says, where does war, or where do wars come from? Where do wars come from? And he says, he says wars begin inside, inside of man. He said, wars begin with man's desire to have And so he's saying division and wars, and now he's applying it to the whole experience. He said, it comes from within man. Well, this is consistent with what Jesus said. He said, you know, when the, the Pharisees were all upset about his disciples not going through all the protocols and the rituals as, as effectively, you know, they had possible, possible COVID infection and they weren't wearing masks or washing their hands good enough. And the Pharisees were saying, hey, you're not wearing a mask. You're not washing your hands. And Jesus said, well, you know, this is not what makes you unclean. Defilement comes out of the heart, for out of the heart comes jealousy and murder and hatred. So this is the whole message of James. He said, listen, war. Now, here's the scenario. We've got, we got people who've been displaced by actual physical violence. The houses have been bombed, etc., etc. Many of them had horrendous first-hand experiences. But the Lord says, gives me this prophetic picture. And I began preaching. I said, and I wasn't even going to go here. All of a sudden, I just saw it. I, I said, where do wars come from? And the Lord showed me a flood. Showed me a flood of water coming, raging down a mountain and wiping everything in its path. And, and I, I heard it very distinctly. He said, the same place that a flood comes from. Where does a war come from? A war comes from inside of you, 
A flood comes from one raindrop, then another, then another, then another, then another, then another, then another. And those raindrops start to saturate the ground to the point where the ground can't absorb them anymore. And they begin to collect and they begin to gather in a little pool. And that pool grows until it reaches its banks and it begins, you know, it's a tiny little thing, three inches across, but all of a sudden it runs into the next pool and that one fills up and that one runs into another. And next thing you know, you've got a tiny trickle running across the ground, a tiny trickle of water. And then you've got one trickle that meets another trickle and you've got, all of a sudden now you've got a little bit, of tiny little five-inch stream. And next thing you know, that merges with three or four others and you've got a little creek. And a couple of creeks merge, and next thing you know, you've got a torrent. Torrent of water. And James is saying, you are called to make peace, but you've been making war. Though all of James is saying, you have been speaking out of your frustration. You have been speaking out of your anger. You have been speaking out of envy. You have been speaking out of lust, he says. Desire. You desire to have. That's the root of this. So the message was to these folks, and with all due respect, I understand their pain. But when war materializes in the natural, it didn't start overnight. It started because we allowed ourselves to begin to curse, to begin to speak evil. We justified negative words. We tore people down. We criticized. We, we released words. And those words aren't just words. They are a substance that the dogs of war lead, uh, happen upon. You know, when, it, the, when the dogs of war are being released, it's a, it's a saying, it's a slogan, it's a metaphor. But what if there were real substances that caused these things to happen? What if there were literal thresholds achieved that caused breaches in peace in the natural? Who does God fault for that? The only ones who could make peace. The only thing standing between us and war is us. We are the peacemakers. And so God is saying, listen, my government is a government of peace and the end of peace and the end of my government, there's no end. It's going to keep growing and it's going to keep growing, but it's going to grow because I'm going to have a people who know how to make peace. And he says, but... Here's where it starts. It doesn't start out there. It doesn't start with you marching down the street. It doesn't start with you, you know, going to your neighbors and saying, turn down your music. It doesn't go, you know, mean you writing letters. I mean, you can do all those things, but but where war stops, where destruction comes to a nation that wants to come to a nation is halted in its footsteps is through the sound, the voice of peacemakers. Now, there's so many elements to this we can talk about, but, but this, is, this is a substance, peace. I said in the very first message, peace is not a behavior. We're not trying to be peaceful. We are sowing the fruit of righteousness and peace in order to make peace. 
But it begins with a process. You still with me? I'm going to try and cut this really short. But look, look at... So, in chapter 3, chapter 3 is really about him saying, listen, I can tell you're, make, you're, you're making war because you're speaking. Speaking the wrong things. He says, out of your mouth are coming blessing and cursing. In other words, war and peace are coming out of the same, the same mouth. And he said, listen, those are, not, those are not one river. Those are two different rivers, but one mouth. He said, this does not have to be, and this ought not to be. But he's saying, listen, you guys, you're complaining against one another. If you go back to chapter 1, you see he starts. He's, he starts by getting on them about, about the overflow of wickedness. He said, listen, there's an overflow of wickedness. Be slow to speak and slow to wrath. But you don't understand, James. I'm right. You don't understand, James. I'm the one that's being defrauded here. That guy sat in my seat. That guy parked in my spot. That guy got compliments that should have been mine. I don't care what. Say, this is the point. It doesn't matter what happened. The question is, and this is always the fundamental question with apostolic kingdom uh, ministry. It's this. Is it what, 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 what commodity is flowing from your heart? What commodity is flowing from your heart? If you spend any time with anybody who's mature, you're going to realize that there's a harness on them that's from the Lord. Not because they don't get frustrated, but, but, but they know that they're called to restrain the war that would come out of them and sow peace. And I, I'd give you a couple of illustrations there, but I, I, I don't want to spend too much time. But he's, he, look at it, he says, listen, uh, verse 2, for if we all stumble in many things, but if anyone's, does not stumble in word. He is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. Now, perfect there is complete. When the Bible talks about perfect, it says, be ye perfect as I am perfect. It's talking about complete. It's like the same word when of, that it has to do with fullness. When you plant a garden and that garden comes to the place where it's harvest time, that's fullness. It's complete, full grown. But he talks about the power of the tongue. He says, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and it turns the whole body. And he talks about the rudder of a ship. He said, your tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It can turn, and it's a small part, but it turns a huge ship. Great power in the tongue. And this is what I shared two weeks ago. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among the members that it defiles the whole body and is set, sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Uh, are you talking to Christians still? Who else would I be? I mean, the, the, the world knows nothing of the life of God. The, the world knows nothing of being a conduit for the manifestation of the glory of God. Only the righteous do. So he's saying, listen, there's this duality in your life that's happening. And, and one moment, this, 
Overflow of wickedness is flowing up. How many of you are tired of hearing this? I know I've talked about this before, but this is the journey. This is the whole journey. Yeah, but there's less flowing through me now. Yeah, but I guess you still need a reminder. My wife gets tired of watching sports, so she doesn't watch them. But she, she says, what, why would you listen to another interview? They just say the same thing over and over. <laughs> yeah, we got to play our game and work really hard. <laughs> why do they say that over and over? Because that's what their coach reminds of them. It's very basic. Play our game, work really hard. Move faster. Oh, this kingdom journey, it's the same stuff. Less, less of Satan, more of God. <laughs> less cursing and more blessing. Less unforgiveness, more forgiveness. Less impatience, more patience. But, but there's this... There's this self-justifying thing inside of us. So we find ways to justify the overflow of wickedness. And that's where we're coming to here. He's saying, he's saying, listen. And because this is their response to him is always, yeah, but okay, I was mad and I had an overflow of wickedness, but I was correct for doing so. I was on the right side of that doctrinal issue. I was right side of that political issue. I was on the right side of that, that encounter with that guy, my wife, my friend, whatever it is. I was correct. He said, it doesn't, right and wrong is not the main issue here. Life and death is. When you speak, you either speak out of life or you speak out of death. What I'm trying to get you to understand is not just when you're right, not just when you're wrong, but what, what passions are coming out of you. When you're saying what is right, do you imagine yourself with your hands around their neck, squeezing tightly? Your rightness has no value then. Because you're ministering death, though the letter of the law is correct. But the letter of the law kills. So this is what he says. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast or lie against this tr- the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. What wisdom is that? The wisdom, the mindset, the the justification that, yeah, I was angry and... You you remember Lord of the Rings, right? When Schmeagel, you know, and who was the guy who had it for a while there? Huh? No, but the other guy who got it, Bilbo got it from. No. Was it... Maybe it was Bilbo. Oh, it is Bilbo. Bilbo's the old guy? He's not a dwarf. What is he? Hobbit. The old Hobbit. Yeah, Bilbo. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Who's the guy who had it all the time? She, no. The hero of the whole... St- Frodo. Yeah, yeah, Frodo. Okay, Bilbo, Frodo. They sound, you know, they both got O's in them. 
Amen. Remember when Bilbo had it and you have them on? I've, I've actually taken that little framework. And I, if I were a PowerPoint kind of guy, I'd be playing that for you right now. But it's all of a sudden, he's just there, and he sees the ring, and he goes, like, that's the overflow of wickedness right there. Wives, have you seen that in your husband? Right? I told you three times to come and eat. I'm watching TV! Right? That's the overflow of wickedness. It's, it's that surging that does not come from heaven. How do you know it doesn't come from heaven? Because that it's, you know. It doesn't, its nature is not to bless. Its nature is not full of mercy and compassion and delicate gentleness. It has other stuff in it. And so James is saying, listen, there's stuff that comes from below and there's stuff that comes from above. Patience, love, understanding, mercy. These things are from above. But you keep coming with things from below and you say, because it was representing the right cause, therefore it was justified, therefore it was God. This is what, this is what he's talking about. He said there's two types of wisdom. One justifies the overflow of wickedness and the other is the overflow of heaven. So the wisdom that's from, listen, listen to this. The wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, willing to yield. Wow, willing to yield. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Let me tell you, none of us have done this 100%. None of us. But there should be a diminishing amount of that in our lives. And that's going to be the source of peace. If we want peace in this land of Canada, if we want peace in the province of Alberta, it's going to come because people have cut off the tributaries of war. They've cut off the source of war, the source of evil, the source of murder, the source of hatred. See, we have the power as the people of God, and we're the only ones to sow righteousness. And yet, when it comes to this process, how good are we doing? Well, we're going to do a lot better in the months and years to come. Because God's truth is shining on this with such clarity and with such a ferocious intensity. There's going to be a generation that are going to get this. There's going to be a people who realize that, okay, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot pretend this doesn't happen. This, but you say, well, yeah, but in this case, because I was defending righteousness it was it was it was justified no the wisdom that's from above is easily entreated willing to yield it is not when has god ever yielded to a plan that was not his how about anointing saul who was upset about that samuel was upset 
The people wanted Saul for their king, and Samuel's like, they're departing from the Lord. And then, uh, you know, because Samuel's representing the Lord. His, he's invested in God's reputation here, right? And so God comes to Samuel, and he says, Let, anoint Saul for them, but, but uh, this is wrong. He said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. You get what happened there? Samuel pretended to be standing for the honor of God, but he was really personally offended because his ministry, his service to the nation was being overlooked. The source of that depression, anger, whatever else against the nation of Israel was because he himself had been overlooked. Such a God to say to them, they're rejecting me, not you. And me, because I'm God, I'm willing to yield. You know why? Because time is on my hand, my side. I, and I will have my king on my holy hill. I got workarounds for everything. And, and I'm willing that the people, the nation of Israel, would walk through the process that they need to walk through because if that's the king you want, if you are set on having that king, I'm going to give you that king and at the end of the day, you're going you're gonna to beg me for my king. Right now, you're not ready for my king. You will be. Yeah, that ties into eight more sermons. But the point is this. Is that the flesh of man, the lusts of man, the desires of man are impatient. They're angry. They're self-glorifying. And any time anybody touches them, you will respond like that. David understood this. So when Jonathan, he had this covenant with Jonathan, him and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 21, I think it is. They're out in the, they're out in the field, and he says, yeah, your dad doesn't like me. And he says, oh, what gives you that idea? I'm, I'm serious. I think he's trying to kill me. He says, he says well, well uh, what do we do? So you go back and uh, tell him that when I'm missing, when he notices I'm missing, tell him you asked for permission for me to go back to Bethlehem to be with my family for a special family feast during this time. And, And his disposition, his response to that will tell you whether murder is in his heart or not. Just tell him. Yeah, he's he's away this weekend. So... Okay, so he goes the first day, and Saul is looking, and he's pretending he's not paying attention to David's empty seat. And in his mind, it says that he's thinking, surely he's unclean, surely he's unclean. In other words, you know, he, he, he couldn't, because of ceremonial reasons, be with everybody. The second day he comes up, he's still not there, and inside, Saul is fuming. The overflow of wickedness is churning. He's like, and he says, so... Uh, Where's the son of David, uh, or the son of Jesse? Uh, you know, uh, he wasn't there yesterday, still not there today. Trying to pretend to be casual while just underneath there's volcanic murder seething through his pores. I said, well, he asked if he could go to his family. And I said, yeah. And he explodes with the overflow of wickedness. He takes a spear and he throws it at his own son. Tries to kill Jonathan. That scenario. See, David knew 
said something as innocuous as this. Anything that delays his secret agenda, if he re- you will see the secret agenda by his response. I've, re- I've realized this. I've realized this first in my own life. I've realized this, that when somebody says something that gets me and elicits that kind of response, it, it's not important who's right or wrong. In fact, there are times, there have been times when I had the right, in fact, even the mandate to speak to issues, but because I knew there was irritation in me, I began to stop even speaking because I thought I cannot, even though it's my right and my authority to speak, I can't justify this until I feel I'm free. That's the path. God is, is in the business of showing you what river is flowing through you at what time of your day. And you can have, just like Peter, one day it can be the streams of revelation, the understanding of God. I'm going to build my kingdom on this. Peter, you are amazing. And the next day, Peter, not Peter, Satan, get behind me. That's the duality of the human heart. I thought we invited Jesus into our hearts. Well, the heart is more complex than that, and I'm not going to explain it today, but the heart, out of the heart comes life and death. If we're going to be a people who establish peace, and let me tell you, what if we had the power? I don't know what's going to happen in the days ahead. I, I'm, not, I'm not that kind of a prophet. I, God hasn't invited me into the council chamber of heaven and given me a blow-by-blow you know, chronicle of the next five years. That would be great. But I tell you what, the purposes of God, the plan of God, the kingdom of God, the, the, the manifestation of what God has done in us, I already know this, that we could have peace here in Parkland County, even if that's nowhere else in Alberta. We could have peace in northern Alberta, even if it's nowhere else in Canada. We could have peace in Alberta as a province, even if it's nowhere else in the continent, if we begin to sow peace. If we say, no, I am not going to justify rage. I'm not going to justify evil thoughts. I'm not going to justify accusation. I'm not going to justify resentment. I'm not going to justify and start in your own family. So I'm pretty good except with my wife. I'm pretty good except with my kids. I'm pretty good except for, well, it's the except for that matters then. We are in a process. God is making us. The sons of God are makers of peace. There's a power that comes with that. I believe there's an ability to create an atmosphere that suppresses evil, that suppresses ill will, that suppresses the volcanic overflow of a murderous thought in somebody else. We can generate enough of an atmosphere that even people who are prone to cooperate with demonic spirits in their own life can be inclined otherwise simply because of our presence. And as we grow in the power to create that atmosphere, the ability to do that increases. The kingdom of God is going to come not because God says, okay, they're just hopeless losers. 
I better come and do it. He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he's going to do that through a church, through a people, through a generation. The generation of Jacob that seek his face is coming up. And they're going to have the power to make peace. And Jesus is coming back for a kingdom handed to him on a silver platter because we will have broken the back of the kingdom of darkness through peace. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Father, we say in Jesus' name, Lord, we're all at different places, and Lord, maybe we'd be embarrassed if people saw us in a moment of an overflow of wickedness. Maybe we don't want anybody to know, but Lord, we know that there's not one of us in this room who has not had one or many of those moments. Some just, even this morning, on the way to church. Father, we bless right now. We bless right now. We bless right now. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to feel disconnected from God. You just have to feel accountable. He just wants you to say, listen, just just don't justify it. Where it starts is just don't justify it. Well, if you had just talked to me differently. Really? Let's stand up together. Thank you, Lord. Father, we, we want the ministry of peace. We want to create atmospheres of peace. Lord, we want people, when they come into our cars, into rooms with us, into offices with us, to just find themselves inundated in something that subdues aggravation. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Can you say amen? Amen. And I want to close with this scripture. Uh, It's Proverbs 12, 17, and it says this. 18, 12, 18, it says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Right? So, Father God, may you give us a wisdom that comes from above in dealing with each other, with our government, with our city, with our neighbors, with everyone around us, God, with our wives, with our kids. Father, may you give us the tongue of the wise that will bring healing. Because, God, our desire is to see healing on our land, healing in our churches, healing in our homes, healing in our province, healing in our nation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed as you go. We love you.